Good morning. It is so good to be with you. I've heard about the Lafayette Church for years, and I have never been here. And I've known Stacy for years and haven't seen him actually in a while. So I'm very glad to have been asked to come. I'm also very happy that Pastor Stacy is on sabbatical because that means that this church understands and values the rest and study that your spiritual leaders need. Has this year been unique? Yes, it certainly has, across the board. And every single pastor I know has cycled through discouragement, feelings of inadequacy, exhaustion, a sense of being a trauma manager when one is likewise traumatized, or at least wondering and curious about what is God going to pull out of this COVID bag? Who knows? We have hope, we have faith, we know that God's in charge, but there were questions, different questions that at any other time in our ministries. A year ago this time, if you can remember back then, the things that we were doing, wearing gloves and masking all the time and, and all the new things that we were you know, hoarding, all the things that we were trying to figure out, there was no shortage of people who had answers with what on the surface were practical questions, but were really deeply theological questions too for the church. Questions like the use of technology. We heard, well, how can we broadcast our ministry into the world with the best technology we can afford and actually pull it off? Versus, how can technology recreate the gathered body when it leaves out the elderly and the poor who don't have access to this kind of stuff? There was a loud question, or a large question, about if and how to meet in person. Now here are a range of options from, no, don't meet in person. For as Jesus would say, care for the least among you. Protect them. Be sacrificial. And when you do return, wear your mask. Versus the idea, no, no, expect the all-powerful God to protect us from everything. Doubt is sin. Meet in person, as scripture tells us to do constantly. And forget the masks. God is mighty to save in prayer, as it says in James. There was a question of music. Sing, don't sing. And communion, if and how to celebrate it safely and correctly, theologically. We were also tested to experience life without beloved church traditions groups, events that have made our congregations feel like those warm and friendly places that we want them to be, or that at least remind us of what church used to be in our youth, perhaps, or former days. Regular events that we felt we could not live without. We realize now, yeah, we can live without, and maybe should live without. In other words, the last year with COVID has forced us to examine our beliefs and to examine our practices as to what is central about the church being the church, the body of Christ. There was a sense 
of real Christians do X, Y, Z. No, versus real Christians do A, B, C. And for many people, these two could not coexist. Each group believing they were putting Jesus at the center of their faith and that that is why they were making the decisions they were making. Did you get a sense of that as this year went on? I did, as a pastor. Thoughtful Christians will ask, are there beliefs or practices once thought essential that we now realize have been taking our eyes off Jesus and we need to give up in order to get back on track to the center? The problem in Paul's letter to the Colossians and the task for the church for all times and places is finding what is the absolute center and clinging to that, modeling that, teaching that, living that. What is essential and what needs to go? And very importantly, what is false and needs to be rebuked. When Christ is the center, he shapes our community. He shapes our worship, our mission, and hopefully our thinking. But when something else is the center, then we have created an idol. And idols are false substitutes for God. We know we're made in the image of God, the imago Dei. But in idolatry, we ourselves make the image. And we give it center stage in our thinking. And once there, that picture settles in, remolding us into the image of that idol ourselves. And our faith takes on the shape of what we believe and practice rather than the shape of God's image. Now, obviously, when our focus isn't on God, we're in trouble. But it's perhaps even more tricky when the focus is just off a little bit, just a tiny bit, when it's related to God, when it sounds pretty spiritual, has the approval of former generations of people in the know. And when that's the case, it's really hard to discern the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is truth, and what is lie, what is central and what is peripheral or even heretical, way off base, taking us into lies about God. We become protective of the idols we make, thinking they are legitimate sources of truth. And that was the case among some of the people in Colossians in Colossae, which was a once great city that is now not even an archaeological site in present-day Turkey. There was a group that clung to false modes of worship and some cult-like faith practices, a blend of Greek philosophies and Jewish rituals and Christian teachings all smashed together. And this group was trying its best to try to get the other believers in Jesus Christ to sign up for their team, to join them in their special practices and their secret knowledge. And they were having some success. 
it was likely easy to be convincing because these practices sounded pretty holy. Mystical practices with secret knowledge about angels who worship before God. That sounds pretty cool, don't you think? Excessive fasting and denial of the body's needs doesn't sound cool, but made quite a show. Celebrating obscure religious festivals and Sabbath rituals. Wouldn't you like to know all about that? And getting all holier than thou about what they were eating and what they were drinking. Now, on the surface, these folks looked like they were the real Christians. Look how holy they were. Look at all the effort they were putting into to God, willing to give all of this energy and, and time to God. It sure looked like Christ was the center of their lives. But Paul says, these people are deluded. He says of them, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. They had replaced Christ at the center with worthless religious show, worthless rules, worthless regulations that can't save and can't even show us the image of Jesus. They can't make us look like Jesus. They can't fashion us in Christ's image. Their false beliefs and their haughty religious spectacle kept these believers from clearly seeing who Christ is the one who came offering grace and freedom from all that stuff they were lugging around with them. Their beliefs kept them from looking God in the face so they couldn't even see their own true identity as his children. And so this group of, this, this group of people became as exclusionary and as irrelevant as their beliefs that they held. Paul warns the Colossians against such sin. Perhaps you, in your life, have experienced such groups, or maybe even been caught up in them yourselves or tempted to join them. In my own lifetime, I've seen an emphasis given to substitutes for God in the church, a clinging to practices that might have had their place at some time, but never really pointed you to Christ as the center. I've seen things that seem spiritual and might indeed have some merit, but easily veer off base. Our culture is rife with such dangers today as Christianity is blended with ideas from other religions, health and wealth gospel, pop psychology, Christian nationalism, just to name a few things. Some ideas seem really trivial, and some are pretty weighty, controversial, hard to think about, and fraught with the, the potential for great disagreement. Some of these ideas are really dangerous for us as believers. On the trivial side, are what might be called tools or devotional items. As children in my church, and maybe you've done this 
in, with your kids, or maybe you had this when you were little, you had to memorize Bible verses. Do you ever have to do that? And then you got little, you got something for it. Well, one of the prizes I got was a little glow-in-the-dark cross. And I would go to bed, and I would hold it up to the light beside my bed until it glowed, and then I'd turn off the light, and it would glow there in the dark, a little green thing. And this eerie shade of green was just fascinating to me, and it felt so holy. I felt so holy as a little girl. And I must admit, I felt better than other people who weren't saying their prayers by a glow-in-the-dark cross. You know, that was pretty cool. But you know what? God did not hear me any better because of my glow-in-the-dark cross. And what was meant to be a reminder of Christ, I allowed to become an object of really silly, stupid, sinful pride. Paul would have told me I was puffed up with idle notions by my unspiritual mind. Maybe you could have used that little cross more wisely, but for me, it bordered on idolatry. And, and we see all kinds of objects that, that are used and sometimes the object becomes what is worshipped rather than the God that it represents. On the weightier side of things, how can we talk about buildings, church buildings? Man, during COVID that year, this was pushed front and center as thousands of church buildings, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, sat vacant for a long time, including some extremely large buildings. I understand and I appreciate the theological connection between a congregation and its building, their architecture, the usage of it. I love your building, the way you've blended old and new. It's wonderful. I love visiting lofty cathedrals. And as Jordan said, I've pastored a lot of churches including congregations that met in plain white clapboard buildings in New Hampshire. I think, the, I think the oldest was from 1730. You can imagine that building. I've, worshipped, I've pastored in large brick edifices stuffed with colossal stained glass windows and vaulted ceilings. And in modern buildings with offices and a classroom ring, even kind of a coffee shop church. And each one has its place. Yet in each ministry, every single one of them, a huge percentage of time and money was delegated to what? The building. The upkeep of the building. The ministries done in the building, even to the exclusion of the mission life of the church outside the walls. Now, I haven't seen your budget, and I'm not making any judgments here, believe me. I'm just asking, I hope, honest questions that are good for all of us, all believers everywhere, to ponder. Most congregations need a building, but we must always be aware of how it is an essential part of our ministry. If it's just the Christian clubhouse, we need to ask where our center is. We just closed my congregation, Redeemer Covenant Church in Caledonia, Michigan, south of Grand Rapids. I loved that church. Over the years, the building was used to host elaborate 
plays and pageants for the community. It hosted an active food pantry. English as a second language course for refugees. An occasional community group for people who were pondering their vocation. The building was purposefully built ADA um, compliant, totally handicap accessible. And we were trying to grow that ministry. It was part of our calling. The ringing acoustic of our sanctuary made for amazing worship. Our large grounds hosted a community garden for years and years. The spiritual gift of the congregation was really hospitality, and the building played a part. So why did we close? Because over the three decades of its existence, the decreasing membership of Redeemer, logically, gave a lot less money until all that was left of our stewardship went to support the building and the staff. It's kind of 50-50, and neither of those was, just saying, was not so great. A whole lot of our human resources and our energy and our time went to talking about and fixing and cleaning and sustaining the building, caring for the grounds, rather than connection to the community around us. And there was bitterness, a lot of bitterness, about the way this building had been built. It was built large. There was a bossy group of people who came to this church plant, and they wanted what they wanted. They wanted the tall steeple. They wanted the big sanctuary. They wanted all this and that. And so they built it, this large showy building on the cheap. And then they left when some other problem came up, and they left this huge, colossal mortgage to a group of people who didn't want it in the first place. So there was bitterness at the root of this church. There was a love-hate relationship with that building, and it took a lot of our thought and time and prayer and resources and joy. It sucked the joy out of this congregation. So the building had become this congregation's feed-me idol fraught with theological issues like, what is the center of our ministry? <coughs> Christ or the mortgage and 10 acres of land? Paul talked about some believers in Colossae taking up their time with shadows of things to come rather than the reality that's Christ. Being honest about our building felt that way, that we were living in shadows, not reality and really had been since the church planters had first taken that shovel of dirt and tossed it to the side and started the building. Ironically for us, closing was the option that put Christ back at the center. We celebrated, we remembered, we repented, we dreamed, and we offered our beautiful building to God's new plan. And within a week, a vibrant congregation of Burmese Christian refugees bought that building, and they are loving that building. And they are there, 300 of them, with half of them are kids about this tall. They're dancing and they're singing, and they are so filled with the joy of the Lord. And the money from the sale of that building is now planting new churches and sustaining existing churches in the Great Lakes Conference. 
Paul's letter to the Colossians invites us to look at other aspects of our belief and our practice that may be keeping us from spiritual and, and biblical reality. Are there ways in which we are misleading other believers, emphasizing the wrong things, or maybe just a, just a little bit off-center enough to, to limit our faith, to throw us off a little bit? I believe the American church's greatest danger comes in running our theology through the lens of national pride and national honor and calling it biblical. As good covenanters, this is how we're to read scripture. This comes from our statement on reading the Bible. Good covenanters, this is what we are to read scripture faithfully, communally, rigorously, charitably, holistically, with commitments to grace, transformation, and mission. That is how we agree to read the scripture. And yet there's for many a certain sense that our religion needs to conform to our or somebody else's political views. Or else it must not be Christian. We start with preconceptions that then block our ability to think any differently or read scripture more faithfully, fully, communally, rigorously, more charitably, holistically, and in short, more honestly. Those preconceptions and our desire to be better than, more special than other believers, is, is just Colossians all over the place. We're living Colossians again when we do that. Looking at the center, which is Christ, means that we must see ourselves as citizens of heaven first before any other allegiance, any other allegiance. Other identities we take up humbly before God, and to do less is idolatry. In next week's reading, Paul talks about our lives being hidden with Christ in God totally reorienting the way we view and participate in the things of the world, which includes the places in the world, the cultures of the world, even our own culture, our own history as a nation. <coughs> Let us turn our eyes to Jesus and see what realities he has for us in his word. The book of Colossians invites us to continue the conversations we've been forced to have during COVID. We didn't want them, but they came to us. And this book invites us to continue those. Conversations many congregations have pussyfooted around for decades because, you know, we're Christians, we hate conflict, don't we? We don't wanna, no, we don't wanna go there. That's, that's not nice, not covenant nice. So we haven't had perhaps, the difficult conversations, honestly, as we should have, about so many things. About social issues, political issues. But can we see those conversations as deeply spiritual and fully good for us, no matter how hard they may be at times? Without conversation, we can't find the center and move toward it together. I grew up in Jamestown, New York, a little town 
well, outside of Jamestown, in Western New York, and I attended a covenant church there, though my parents were not believers. I absorbed many of my beliefs about Christianity, though, through the attitudes and the practices of the people around me. Maybe that's how you grew up as well, kind of small town America. And I also absorbed ideas through Sunday school and through confirmation and church camp and such things. But I went off into the world at the age of 17. I moved overseas to Sweden as a foreign exchange student without having any skill at all, zero, no skills, nil, at examining my own beliefs. No one had taught me to do that. No one had taught me to, to look at my own assumptions, my own list of what is necessary to be a Christian. And it was a huge wake-up call for me. My list of rules and regs was long. And that put me in my little Jesus box. And they were challenged in that year. Alcohol. Purity. Family life. Remember I said I moved to Sweden where family members, they're not too worried about how many clothes they wear around the house. They really are not. I'm just saying that. My concept of worship and my experience of Christian community, they were challenged. How I saw my Christian country's faithfulness was certainly challenged. This was in the mid-70s and churches abroad were marching against our participation in Vietnam. I didn't know anything about that. I'd heard of a lot about personal salvation. I'd heard about justification in my home church. We were all about personal salvation at both church and at camp, but nobody, no one had preached or talked about justice, about peace, about God's love for the poor, about God's concern for the powerless. No one had talked about that. I grew up fed on Paul, a strict diet of Paul, not the prophets ever, except maybe, you know, when they were, Advent time when they were singing Comfort Ye My People from the Messiah. I, we didn't hear Isaiah. We heard Paul. And so I was out of balance. I was off center. It was my Colossians moment. I had to recognize that I was dragging lots of unhelpful, even erroneous, half-baked biblical assumptions around with me, using them as a line in the sand to prove who was a Christian and who was not. I knew where I stood, but I was the one worshiping idols, and I needed to find the center. So who is Christ to you? And how does that picture of him call you to live, to worship, to serve, to sacrifice, to give, to confess, to give voice to the voiceless, to forgive, to celebrate, and to praise. Friends, let's leave the shadows. Let's leave any shadows we may be hiding in to find the beautiful but extremely challenging reality of looking fully in the face of Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Gracious one, Lord of all, center, 
God, I ask you to bless this congregation in Lafayette. Bless each person, each family, each effort they make that is of you. Thank you for working through them for these years that they have been together. It is so evident in being among them how much they love you. Bless them with the hard gift of honest conversation about what is central to identifying and following Jesus. Grant gifts of humility and wisdom and a desire to cast off anything that might impede them, to take up what will send them like an arrow to the center of the target that is life in Christ. I pray a special prayer as well of encouragement in the wake of the news of transition that is coming on the staff. God, be part of every, every moment of this time. We thank you, God, for the life that is possible in you. We are your grateful children. We pray this in the name of you who are the center of our lives. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.